Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome. This is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. And I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the sports broadcaster Nigel Adderley. If you're a football fan, the Nigel's voice will be very familiar to you, having commentated on massive matches across the BBC, TalkSport and numerous other networks across the globe for more than 20 years. I got to know Nigel a bit through working at TalkSport a few years back, but only recently did we discuss mental health issues with each other. That was after I wrote a piece on The Reset about my history of epilepsy. Nigel got in touch to say his own experiences were very similar. I was delighted that he agreed to come on The Reset to discuss all of this and more in such detail. As you'd expect, Nigel's a very accomplished speaker who really opened up about himself in this chat. I hope you enjoy listening. Nigel Adley, welcome to The Reset. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you, mate. And um, only recently did we find out that we had something quite um, peculiar, I suppose you could say, in common, which is that we'd both had seizures in adult life, uh, seizures that were traumatic and confusing, and that by the sounds of things, neither of us really quite know where they came from. Let's start off by you telling us about your incident. Yeah, October 2009, and I had a, a, a grand mal seizure. And it was, I think, very fortunate for me that I had it at a football match. And I happened to be on the air at the time, which, which wasn't great. I was commentating on West Ham against Fulham in the Premier League one Sunday afternoon. And I was commentating with Matt Holland um, at Upton Park. And midway through the second half, I had a seizure. And I wasn't aware of it coming at all myself. Um, I was commentating and I remember saying Carlton Cole's name. And I sort of went Carlton Cole, Cole, and then everything went black. And I woke up 25 minutes later. I was looking up and looking down on me were Matt Holland, Alistair Bruce Ball, who was also there for, for Five Live that day, and yeah. Loz, who is the West Ham Club doctor. Uh, and right. West Ham were brilliant. And apparently what had happened was I had gone into seizure. Um, and it was very scary for, for those around me. Not for me, because I was oblivious, but my eyes were apparently rolling in the back of my head. I was trying to mm. swallow my tongue and I was shaking. And at West Ham, I don't know if you ever went in the old press box, it was very confined. Yeah. I mean, I'm a mm. big bloke, but you couldn't move. So even though I was having a seizure, I wasn't going anywhere. And so they managed to drag me out mid-seizure onto a little concourse by the press box. And I was very fortunate because the local MP at the time, he had season tickets in the, in the Dot Martins Upper, just behind the press box. And his wife was a retired GP. And she basically spotted what was happening uh, straight away. I mean, there were a couple of young lads there from St. John's Ambulance. And, and to be honest, it's not their fault. I think they shut themselves because they never had the training to deal with something like no. this. And she came down, she put me in the recovery position, said, look, leave him alone. He's just got to work this through. And then 
I don't know. Presumably, they carted me down in a stretcher from the top of the Doc Martins into the medical room at West Ham. And, and, and West Ham were great. And then there was an ambulance there because there's an ambulance for every Premier League game. It, it wasn't used that day. And I got carted off to Newham General. But I remember waking up and I remember it very clearly because I was lying down and I was trying to get off, back, off the bed. And I was saying, look, I've got to get back. I've got to commentate on the rest of the game. And they're going, it's over. The game finished 25 minutes ago. I, like, well, I wasn't there. What happened? And they said, a junior status lads equalised in the last minute and it finished 2-2. And I said, well, I'm going to go back and do that again. And they said, well, no, you can't. The game's happened. And you're just all over the place. You, you, you can't compute what has happened. And at the time, my wife was at home listening to the commentary because we had two very young children at the time. And fortunately, her father rang and she turned the radio off about two minutes before I had my seizure. So she didn't hear it happen. Wow. But unfortunately, someone from the BBC rang her and said, hello, Mrs. Adderley, um, it's so-and-so from the BBC here. We're just ringing about Nigel. Does he have any history of heart failure? And she went, well, no. And they went, good, we can rule that out and put the phone down. So she was absolutely distraught. She had no oh. idea what was going on. I got taken to Newham General they got a neurological unit there um, and then saw a consultant the next day and they went, right, you're epileptic. You've had a grand mal seizure. You're going to be on this course of tablets. You're not going to drive for a year. And, and that was it. I was basically discharged on the streets and started my life as an epileptic. Wow. What a traumatic experience. How old were you? I was 38. You were 38, so that's pretty old for something like that to suddenly visit itself upon you. Yeah. And you'd never had a history of sort of just passing out, fainting, anything like that? Looking back, I did have a series of, of episodes which I didn't really deal with. And I suppose a lesson to take from that is if you have anything that you think is neurological, get it checked out. Because what would happen, um, I, I at the time was on a, a, a weight loss drive or was happy for various reasons. And I would go, not eat anything, mm. go to the gym and work really hard, which with hindsight is the most stupid thing you can do. Yeah. And I would basically be on the treadmill going like this, you know, doing your half an hour and doing your, your, your 5k or whatever. And then I'd have this particular feeling almost seep up my body from my feet. I couldn't really explain it. And it would, it would get to your head. And it would make you go, make you recoil and go, and it wasn't unpleasant, but then it would almost completely wipe your memory for the previous couple of hours. So I'd come off a treadmill and I'd be lying on a, a mat stretching off and it would happen. And I would ring my wife up and say, well, what, what's going on? What are we doing today? And she'd go, well, you know, you're driving to Burnley in an hour to do a commentary. And I'd go, oh yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, of course I am. And then it would all come back. And then you just basically get in your car, drive to turn more and do the game and my wife kept telling me you've got to get this sorted out there's something not right here because I would have these episodes now and again and they weren't unpleasant but I suppose looking back they were probably more worrying for her than for me because mm. as a bloke you always feel in control even when you're not whereas she could obviously see there was a problem and uh, eventually um, I went to have an MRI scan and that was that was absolutely terrifying for somebody who was claustrophobic because you obviously go into this long, thin, dark tube and they have all these you know, lights and bells and whatever else going on. And that, that show didn't show anything. So they thought, well, there's no, there's no problem with the brain. But clearly there was some sort of issue um, because it, I ended up having a seizure. But I think that you know it, there was something going on for, for, for quite some time before that, but I didn't get it checked out and... That's to my, you know, my shame, really. So it similar to what my suspicions are, and I'm, my experiences are similar to yours in as much as it never really, to this day, it never really feels as if it's been explained by any medical profession, a professional. Uh, same thing, had a not particularly pleasant MRI scan, various other tests on a number of occasions. So I had a number of fits when I was younger. And they came away going, well, we're not quite sure, to be honest. Um, but what I'm hearing, the, the similarities, and this is why we initially started talking about this before we did this podcast, was there are similarities in as much as we both feel as if there was a sense that we were maybe 
pushing ourselves too hard. We were overstretched and we weren't paying attention to that. We weren't spotting the signs of being physically, mentally, emotionally stretched. Do you think that that's fair? Yeah, absolutely right. And the big trauma in our lives uh, as the family um, happened at Christmas in 2006 when our, our son was stillborn. And right. that was, I, I think, that was probably the start of this. And you know, the medical profession could never say for certainty, but I, I think that that was the underlying reason because it was the 27th of December. We just had Christmas. Our, our daughter was two at the time. My wife was heavily pregnant with, um, with our son and she had a routine check and they said the baby's not moving. And we got rushed to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford where we were living at the time. And they said the baby's dead. And that is just, you know, you, you can't imagine what, what how, how to react to that. When, when you hear that people have had children die, you think, oh, that's incredibly sad. But when you're actually there, it is just, you know, it, it's almost an out-of-body experience. You, you're looking down on people that have just had a shattering experience in their lives. And the, 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 well, not the worst thing, one, one of many bad things was, um, our, our two children that we have, we, we fortunately had another son who's, who's terrific and, you know, in many, many ways that, that filled a hole in our lives. That They were both uh, C-section, they were cesarean births mm. um, because Max was uh, so far um, into the, 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 the pregnancy, he had to be delivered naturally. So my wife had to go through eight, nine hours of labour knowing that our son was dead. And oh my God. you can't, you, you can't compute, really, what she went through. I mean, it, it, was, it was terrible for all of us, but obviously my wife had the physical um, attachment as well throughout the nine months. And, and and I think, you know, people always say you should never bury your children. And <laughs> believe you me, that, that is absolutely right, because that experience, I think, has shaped the rest of our lives without any question. I mean, I, she never had a miscarriage and... I, I've, I'm, we know lots of people that have had miscarriages. I've, I've heard you discussing miscarriages that, that your wife has had, and they are traumatic experiences. And and, and this the stillbirth was incredibly traumatic as well because he was born. We held him, we we gave him some dignity, we put a nappy on him. We've 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 got pictures. We don't have them on display, obviously, but we've got pictures of him as holding him. You know, it's the it's the classic scene of a of a, a father and and a mother with their son. But, you know, he's dead and we looked absolutely shattered. And it's, I don't know, but we felt it was important to do that, to try and give him some normality. It didn't matter to him, obviously, but, mm. you know, and then we had the funeral and the usual thing, the funeral sort of sustains you because you're organising. There are lots of people around you and there's, there's lots of support and, and that gets you through that. But once that finishes you then have to, to deal with the situation. And the situation is you were preparing to have a child and he's not there. And look, I still think about him every day now. I mean, he, he would be 15 this Christmas. And there's not a day that I don't think about him. It's not, it's not I, I don't try and think about it to make me sad, but he's just there. You know, you, you can't, yeah. he's part of the family. You know, um, our, our lad we have now, he's our second son because Max was our first son. And... And I think that that's probably what sparked it off. Just the the stress and the grief that you carry because you are, you are having to grieve, but at the same time, you are having to get on with normal life, just like everybody else who, who loses somebody. But if you lose a parent, there's almost a bit of normality there, and unless they die maybe really young. Like my dad died at 75 a few years ago, and obviously you've, you've got to support your mother, and it's incredibly sad, but... <laughs> it, there's almost sort of an air of normality about it. You know, that's how it should happen. Your son dying, you burying your son is not how it should happen. And, and if you're looking back, if you're trying to be almost dispassionate about it, I think that was the start of the, the road to epilepsy, if you like. And, and because you, you're trying to carry on a normal life. We had a, a two-year-old daughter at the time. You, you're trying to you know deal with her and, and help her. But at the same time, you are carrying that immense amount of grief. And, and I think that um, maybe your body just has to, to deal with it in certain ways. And, and, and my way was to 
was epilepsy, possibly, but we, I don't know. What did you do at the time in terms of trying to process it? Did you have therapy and counselling or anything like that? Yeah, I did. I mean, the BBC were were great, I have to say. Um, the, the BBC were were very supportive. They are that sort of organisation. Um, and I was staff at the time at the BBC and they offered me counselling, I think six sessions. And I met this lady who was very nice and, you know, I chatted things through, but it was almost sort of like, here you go, have some counselling now. And I thought, I've got to have counselling now. Well, maybe I didn't need it there. Maybe I should have, maybe yeah. I needed it further down the line. Maybe there was too much going on. And, and that's no criticism of her or the BBC. Um, but I, I just think that I did it and it was like, yeah, I've done the counselling now. And it was almost a, a tick list. Whereas yeah. I think I probably should have thought, do I actually need this now? You know, maybe I'm still processing it. Maybe I need counselling now. I don't know. Hopefully not. But but it's it's something that you you were offered at the time and you did it because you felt it was the right thing to do. It probably did help to maybe unload on someone else because, you know, you, you well, we obviously have our, we had our family life at the time. We still had our family unit, which we had to, to um, you know, to, to operate within and, and make sure that functioned. And, and we did talk and we, we did some sort of bizarre things that were strange. I mean, Terry Butcher was a, a friend and colleague of mine he was working in Australia at the time, and he said, right, come over here. Well, what? He goes, get, get yourselves over to Sydney. So a week after the, the funeral, we got on a plane. We went to see uh, my wife's friend in Malaysia, had a couple of days with him, and then went to Sydney. And we got pictures of us by the, by the bridge in the opera house, sort of smiling. But I think it's almost a rictus grin because it's like, yeah. what the fuck are we doing here? But it was probably what we needed to get out of the situation we were in. But when you come back to that, you know, people don't forget because even now people ask me how my health is, you know, how the family is because of what happened. But everyone gets on with their lives and you have to try and get on with your life. And I think you're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to do that, but at the same time, you're also trying to deal with a massive issue. And I, and I think that you, you do have stress. And I, I'm, I have stress now. I have, you know, ele elements of that. I think in my in my life now, and it, it's I'm a long time removed from that, and I think I've when people say time is a healer, it is a healer. They are, they are right, but I'm I'm sure that sometimes states I find myself in now, I could probably trace back to what happened then. Do you feel that you maybe didn't, but uh, let's say between 2006 and 2009, were you? trying too much to just get on with things where you focus yeah. too much on this idea it's quite a british thing that isn't it well you just get on with it what else can you do do you do you, do you think you did that and are there any regrets yeah i i think so i mean what, what happened during that time was that uh, we had our, our second son and and i think that what was a a, a big thing obviously we had a, a a gap between um max dying and, and then trying for another baby because we just had to have that space and mm. my wife obviously needed that space as well. And then very quickly she got pregnant with our, with our son now. And, and that was an incredibly stressful nine months because you, you get this level of care at the hospital. You get this heightened level of care because they're aware of what's happened previously. But every time, you know, you think, is the baby moving? You're constantly asking, is the baby moving? Is the baby kicking? And if you don't feel it moving, you, you ring this number, you're straight in the hospital and they go, no, it's fine. You know, we've scanned him. Um, there's a, you know, there's a heartbeat and, and everything else. But and I was talking to my wife, my wife about it the other day when she, she knew I was coming on with you. And she said, well, yeah, in, in many ways, that was, wasn't too stressful for me because I knew he was there. You know, I mm -hmm. knew that he was okay because she's carrying him. But for me, I, I think it was nine months of, of hell, really, because right. every day you're waking up hoping that the baby's not dead in many ways, which is a terrible way of looking at it, but that's the way you were sort of conditioned to think about it. And at the same time, you are just getting on with your job. And look, I have a great job. I'm not going to whinge about my job. You know, there are people doing far more stressful things than, than commentating on football. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, but I think that you were just having to deal with everything in your head at the same time and, and, 
you're going to to commentate on Coventry against Norwich or whatever it was. And it's always in the back of your mind that, you know, my wife's pregnant and this happened last time and could this happen again? And if it does happen again, how do we deal with that? And and you make up these scenarios in your head that that, that are absolutely terrible, but but you can't avoid that. And I'm sure that adds to the stress. And at the same time, you're still grieving for your previous baby. And, you know, how long does that take? You can't just go, even, even when our, our son was born and everything was okay and great and he's, he's 13 now and he's, and he's absolutely fine. You, you're still dealing with the previous um, uh, death. Um, and when, 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 when he was born, the, the overriding emotion was just relief. It was just like, fuck for that. You know, he's, he's okay. And... In many ways then, and that was in August of 2008, things probably did get a lot easier because you feel like you've got your family unit then. You feel that unfinished business, to put it in those sort of football-like terms, had been completed. But I'm sure by then, the sort of seeds of the epilepsy had been sown in my brain. I think I was having episodes by then. But, you know, you, you've got a job. You've got two very young kids. You just get on with it. And I think you shouldn't get on with it. I should have possibly had the confidence to say, look, I've got to stop here. I've got to see what this issue is because I've got, you know, two young kids and a wife to help support. And if there is a massive problem, if something happens that's really bad, what's going to happen to them? But I think you're selfish. You, you're in a, it's a competitive business, football commentary. You're thinking, I'm commentating on Coventry Norwich now. I've got to keep going because... In six months' time, I want to be commentating on Arsenal against Liverpool. And it's it's stupid. It is really stupid. But that is, that, you know, you, you you work in the media. You know how it is. You know, you, mm. you're always looking to get to that next level. And it's the things you sacrifice to try and get to that next level, which are important. And uh, and by sacrificing them, you can you can have do long-lasting damage. Plus, it's a tremendously intense. I mean, you shouldn't overlook the fact we're, we're all conditioned to sort of say, certainly those of us who work in kind of the media or creative jobs, we're conditioned to say that thing that you just said, which is, oh, well, you know, it's not like I'm saying my job's really hard and all that. And that, in a way, makes you, it stops you from acknowledging to yourself, football commentary, bloody hell. I mean, that is an intense job. I've always thought that. I mean, to me, it's no coincidence that if you're going to have a seizure, it would happen mid-match, listening to you talking. So I'm thinking, the intensity, you cannot rock up. I mean, you know, as you know, I, I, I've done radio presenting probably far too many times I've rocked up and phoned it in, right? <laughs> Very much. Myself. <laughs> you can never do that if you're a commentator. The amount of knowledge, the amount of information, the amount of focus that you require, it's very intense. And I'm thinking, with that being your full-time job, on top of the trauma, the anxiety, the stress that you are facing anyway because of your personal life, um you know, something had to give really, didn't it? Something had to give if you didn't take the time out that perhaps some people would have done and just said, right, I'm, I need six months here or, or however long it takes for me to feel back on a level again. Yeah, I mean, after Max died, um, I had three weeks off and mm. that wasn't the BBC saying to me, you're going to get three weeks and then come back. I was ready to go back to work or I said mm. I was ready to go back to work and I remember my colleagues at the BBC were saying, absolutely sure you can take as long as you need no no i'm coming back i want to work and it was the same after the seizure i had three weeks off and then by the end of it i'm ringing up saying what's my next game what's my next game and they're saying look you just had a seizure you know you've had this three years ago before just take some time off no no i'm ready i want to come back i'm ready and i think that's you know maybe it's a good thing maybe you're competitive maybe you're you're, you're ambitious but at the same time, you can be ambitious, but you can also be sensible because now I work hard now, I've worked long hours, and you know, sometimes you you probably you push it too far. But I am I try to be more aware of the work-life balance and also my health as well. I mean, a call came in uh, yesterday saying, Could I work these two days uh, today and tomorrow? And I just said no because I just need a bit of time. Um, I just want to you know, do, do, do some other stuff, uh, take the dog out, you know, go, go and have lunch with my wife. And 
it, it's only a couple of days. It feels quite insignificant, but you 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 need to you need to reset now and again because yeah. if you don't, you'll find yourself in trouble. And I think that you know, the media, as you know, that there are a lot of wankers in the media, and we're we're probably two of them. Because <laughs> if, if you don't, if you don't, you know, you think oh, if I if I if I took if I'd taken two months off, I'll come back. No one will know who I am. And then it's like, um, oh, you're the guy who couldn't deal with it, you know. And mm. uh, and and you know, possibly in areas of the media, at certain times, people would have gone, oh yeah, yeah, we can't use you, you know, because you're you're the guy who's um, who's a liability, and that's your fear. I think that is the inbuilt fear. And I have to say, it's wrong, because in all the time since um, the, the death of our son and the epilepsy. It's only ever been mentioned by one individual when I've been going for all sorts of jobs. I'm freelance now. I'm, I'm no longer staff at the beach. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. BBC. It was somebody who who mentioned it, and it was like it was in the terms of, yeah, yeah, we were slightly concerned when we saw you were epileptic, um, but you know you, you were absolutely fine, and that's great. And I thought, well, yeah, I, I'm obviously absolutely fine because do you really think I put myself in a position where it might happen again? You know, right. I, I'm, I'm medicated now. I'm on carbamazepine. I take that every single day. I could come off it now. I've been seizure-free for, what is it, nearly um, 12 years. In fact, it's uh, 12 years this weekend coming up. It was October the 9th, 2009, when I had my seizure. Um, so I could come off it now. But then again, if I did, there's a 50% greater risk of me having a seizure. So I play the percentages and, and stay on it. And I think that, you know, I've reached an even keel now. I wouldn't say I've reached an even keel mental health-wise because there are always issues that we but always new challenges we have to deal with. But in terms of the epilepsy, I have I, I found a way of dealing with it. But it took time, even post-seizure. You, you, you're trying to rush back. You're trying to put yourself under pressure again. And maybe because I'm older now, you just think, what is the point? You know, yeah, I, I may get, you know, an extra game a week. I may get more games in the Premier League. But something really terrible could happen as a result of me pushing myself for that. And it's not worth it. I mean, I was so lucky I had my seizure at a football ground. And I've always said this to people. If you're going to have a major medical trauma, make sure it's at a football ground because everything is there. You know, everything is there for you. There were doctors there. There was an ambulance there. There happened mm. to be a retired GP sat in the Doc Martin's upper. That was a, you know, and it was, you know, it could have been so much worse. I could have had a seizure with the kids in the back of the car on the M40, which could have been, tragic for us and so many other people you know i could have had a seizure bathing our son in the bath when i was in my house on the house on my own you know and all those things still go through our mind today you know it could have happened then it could have happened then and it, it, it maybe i was lucky that i got the wake-up call when i was in an environment where people could help me deal with it uh saying no is such a big thing isn't it and it's like i can relate to so much of what you're saying with all the fears and anxieties you have, particularly when you're freelance, you know, which I've been for most of my career one way or another and learning how to say no 
is so important, isn't it? But it took me so many years to get my head around that. And it's still difficult now sometimes, not just because you're anxious, but also because you're enthusiastic. You know, things, you know, it, yes, it is tough commentating and stressful, but I'm sure it's so much fun that when you get, you know, you might get called up and, and offered a, a match. You think actually that would be really exciting. So it's, it's the enthusiasm for the job as well as the anxiety about things like money and career. There's so much sort of stacked against us, isn't there? And and, I, and I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking, you know, all, all, all the guys listening to this, Saying no culturally as well has always been difficult because, like you say, you don't want to, whatever you do for a living, whatever you do socially as well, because there's also the thing of saying no socially when you're combining all of that work with going out and drinking with your mates or whatever it is, you know, um, you, you don't want to be the guy who says no to that. You certainly don't want to say to your lads, I can't because I just feel like I've been overdoing it and I'm tired. When I was younger, I would never do that. I would work flat out. And then come the weekend, I had to be bang up for everything that was going on as well. And, you know, it's taken me to my 40s and various different burnouts along the way to learn how important saying no is. But it remains difficult, doesn't it? It does. It, it does remain difficult. And I remember, I mean, I often look back to the week building up to the seizure thinking, could I have done anything different? As if something that short term would would maybe have made a difference. I mean, it, it could have made a difference, and I could have had the seizure in the car with the kids. So, in, in many yeah. ways, it's it's uh, you know, it, it's good it happened when it did. But that was almost a case study, really, because I remember that week I went to um, Cyprus to cover Chelsea in the Champions League for Five Live, and it was a classic gallop at six o'clock in the morning, get to Luton Airport, flight out four hours sleep beforehand. I remember meeting Mark Bright. We were doing the game. We had a blowout on the, on the ring road on the outside of Nicosia. So we're sat there trying to fix a wheel in the heat. Um, we did the game. I remember talking to, to Lampard after the game and it was a, wasn't a good game. Chelsea won and he was quite spiky and it was quite a, a spiky interview. It was actually I quite enjoyed because it's, it's good to, to have a footballer actually have an answer. I know, mm. you know, <laughs> Frank Lampard's a bit of a totem for you now in the other walks of life. But it was <laughs> if you want a spiky guy. interview, he's the go-to guy, isn't yeah, he? <laughs> exactly. But I remember that very clearly. And I remember coming back, late flight, no sleep. And then you just you know, plunge straight back into it. And I'm, I'm thinking, when I, I arrived at Upton Park to do the game that day, I was probably absolutely knackered. But you just do it because the adrenaline goes. It's a Premier League game, London derby, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, And, and I remember the game. Very clearly, up to the city. I can even remember what I said before I had the seizure. I can remember Fulham going two one up, you know, and and I, I, I can just remember things with such clarity that day. When I remember chugging two cans of Red Bull, which I used to do every day, which was wow. looking yeah. back was to sort of you know just get you to a to a level, and because not because of work, just because of life, you know, because you have, you've got two young kids, you know, you. You're getting no sleep, you're, and at the same time, you're having to, you know, do everything else. And look, I, for legal reasons, I am not saying Red Bull caused my seizure at all. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm sure taking loads of energy drinks on board didn't help. And I never had another can after that day. Mm. And even then, I remember afterwards, my body going, "What the fuck?" And I was shattered for for weeks because I'm yeah. sure my body was missing that intake of whatever's in those drinks. And yeah, it's. I, I'm not. It, I, I will get yourself checked out if you're a bloke, particularly because one of the one of the um, the offshoots of having an epileptic seizure was I couldn't drive for a year, and that wow. piled on the stress because the the rule is if you have a grandma seizure, you can't drive for twelve months, or you have to be seizure free for twelve months. So when I was talking to the consultant the morning after, I was sat in his office in in Newham General. And, and the neuro uh, consultant said, right, here's a form. You're going to have to fill this in and send it to the DBLA. And I'm going, what's this? That is you, um, a suspension of your driving license. And I'm like, well, you know, how, how can I do this job? You know, and I was fortunate. I was staff at the BBC and, and they said to me, right, you can, um, you know, we'll give you taxis to railway stations. You know, we'll pay for all that. You can still do your mm. job, which was great. But imagine if you're, you know, self-employed now, where you're a football commentator, painter and decorator, roofer, if someone takes away your car or your van, you know, you can't work. 
And and that is a reason, I think, whether you think you've got anything wrong with you, just think of what you're going to lose if you if you don't get it checked out, if you don't try and do all you can to get a diagnosis. Um, I remember being in a hospital after one of my seizures um, when I was in my 20s, and I woke up and went, uh, and there was uh, they'd put me on a ward. I'd come into A and E, and then they kept me in for the weekend. They'd stuck me on a ward. I think it was a cardiac ward, so I was in there with like a bunch of mostly old timers, right? And um, I mean, it was funny actually because when I when I came to, I wasn't quite sure where I was, and so I had to ask them, and they said you've had a heart attack, right? <laughs> they said it looks like you've had a fight and had a heart attack, and I said, well, I haven't had a fight, and they were like, oh, that's what they all say because I was covered in bruises because I face planted right in a driveway, and then they go, and I said, and why do you think I've had a heart attack? They said, well, this is the cardiac ward; we've all had heart attacks. <laughs> I had to go around to find a nurse and say, is this what what happened? And they told me anyway. There's a, uh, a there was a, an elderly Indian guy who's really friendly who sat next to me in the bed, and I, my, me and my wife still talk about him because he was asking me lots of questions about the build up to the seizure, and I think I must have said, you know, I was very overstretched. I've been out all day. I probably hadn't eaten properly, but I had had some beers, and she and he said, just do yourself a favour and make sure. Whenever you go out, you've always got a small snack in your pocket, like a packet of mini cheddars, right? And we always remember that because <laughs> it was like really specific snack advice, right? And still now, my wife says to me, because that thing you're saying about exercising, not eating, I'm such a person of extremes that I always get myself still now into states like that, where I just stretch myself too far, think I'm capable of more than I am, at, forget to eat, over-exercise, overwork, whatever. And her sort of little recurring thing to me is, make sure you've got a packet of mini cheddars in your pocket. Remember what that old fella said. But overstretching is so easy, again, for blokes to just fall into that. I mean, still in your life now, you must have to really, really watch that. Oh, I do. And, and I am far more aware of, of what could happen. I mean, I, I was 50 last week and I'm, I'm overweight. I'm actually getting a treadmill for my birthday because I think, you know, it's a good good way of trying to maybe lose a bit of weight and do it in a more controlled area. And and I am wary because since I had my seizure, I remember all the, the stories in the documentary about Andrew Marr having mm. his his stroke. And yeah. and going back on the story, I think he was probably in a stressful situation because he had a high-powered job. I think he may have been having an extramarital affair at the time as well, or certainly had had an affair yeah. at a time in his life when he was on his rowing machine in his shed, pushed himself too far, had a stroke. And, and yeah, and a friend of mine elsewhere in the industry had a stroke a couple of years ago. They basically had to, to, to relearn to speak and, and use one side of their body. And, and that's mm. so scary because you mm. think, well, it's, it's happened to them, so it could happen to... To, to any of us, and, and I think you you do have to be aware. I mean, I look, I'm I, I have a drink, um, and but I'm always I never drink to excess. You know, I, I don't get myself in a state now. I don't think where I'm absolutely paralytic, and you know something could happen. And and I think that you you do try and check yourself. You do try and look after yourself more. I've, I've never taken drugs because well, I'm a son of a copper, and um, because my dad was of a sufficiently lower rank. Um, it was only the the the, uh, the lads who were from the uh, only the sons of detectives who ended up taking drugs because they knew where they were. I think, but um, <laughs> but I think that um, it was yeah. I, I was from a fairly straight laced background, fairly sheltered background, and I think that while that's probably created other issues in my life, I think that um, in terms of looking after yourself, I think that's important, and I think that is a main message to take away from this. You, you have got to constantly maybe just take a step back from it. You think do I need to go out tonight? You know, I've had a really, I've had three 12 hour days. Do I need to go out on it tonight? Do I need to, to take whatever's being offered? Because it's, look, when people are young and when people are stupid, no one ever thinks of consequences. And maybe you only think about consequences when something really terrible happens or you, you burn out and you, you realize you're an addict and you, you've got to, 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 to come away from that situation for your own good. But, if you can just do little things, I think, whether it's your mini cheddars or or, or whatever, <laughs> I think that you know it, it it prolongs your life. And, and, what, and it, maybe equally as importantly, 
it, it doesn't have an impact on the life of the people around you, whether it's your, your mother, your father, your wife, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your children. Because you know, if I have another seizure now, a, a grand mal or, or, or whatever, you know, that's going to have an incredible impact on my life and, and, inf- and affect people, you know, both my, my children now are teenagers. So, you know, that is, you know, they're, they're going through whatever they have to go through in life just to get through to the next stage. And, and I think it's just incredibly unfair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. It's that thing, they say it in recovery from alcohol and things as well. It's like you have to put yourself first. You have to be quite selfish if you want to be there for the other people that you love. And, and a lot of people think, in order to really truly be there for the people you love and do your best, you have to overstretch yourself. But actually that's a false economy because unless you are taking time out for self care, as people call it nowadays, just, you know, time to yourself, treating yourself well, then you will not be the best person you can be for the other people around you. And that that leads me to the last thing I was going to ask you about really was, you know, a lot of this stuff. I remember a lot of articles when Andrew Marr had his stroke by women saying this is all this is uh, you know people like Andrew Marr are victims of a uh, culture of machismo that still exists even in this day and age and and that is part of all the things we're talking about particularly you know you work in football which for all the progress it's made culturally in recent years still you know very blokey football media can be very blokey the whole sport the culture can have a blokish machismo about it and this idea of being almost overachieving, you know, constantly stretched, constantly capable of doing, you know, a, an overwhelming number of things all at once. Do you think that is sort of influenced by the macho, blokey culture that we've kind of been raised in? Yeah, I, I think so. I think no, there was so much bollocks in football. And I think that while it, it is, maybe it's getting, it's different because we're getting more cultures and we're getting more, more nationality, certainly in English football, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it is changing, but yeah, you know, I mean, if you if you watch the big match replayed, say on a on a Saturday morning or a, or whenever it's on, you you look at you know Arsenal against West Ham from nineteen seventy four. There aren't many women there, are there, in the crowd? Okay. You know, and it's it's all blokes, and it's basically you know they've wife's gone shopping, they've gone for a couple of pints at lunchtime, they've gone to the game, they'll go for a couple of pints, they're rolling later on for their tea, and and it's all you know you can you can smell the testosterone on and off the field. And, and I think that, I think in the media, certainly, I think it's it's changing now. And I've seen changes in, in lots of people. I mean, the the, the press pack that, um, that, that cover England now say, now it's a very diverse group. And it's, it's a group of people that are in the main, 90%, very pleasant human beings. They have other interests outside of football. You know, they... They do marathon running. They 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 paint. They, mm-hmm. they they write very interesting books. You know, they they read very interesting books. And whereas probably thirty years ago, you know, some of the legends of Fleet Street probably weren't particularly nice people because mm-hmm. you know they, they, it was all it was that sort of you know drink. We all drink together. We we all talk together. You know, we could go. Out, you know, people would go out with the players and get absolutely hammered, and no, no, no one said anything. And because it was all part of that, you're in that club. You know, you were in the bollocks club. You know, it was, mm. it was. But I think, I think things have changed, and I think it it, it changes for the better. And I, and I actually cover a lot of women's football now. I do commentary on the, a lot of the games in the women's super league and and, and elsewhere. And, it, and I noticed when I started covering women's football, it was very different. You know, there's there's a, a, a higher level of maturity in the dressing room, certainly. And when you you mm. could talk to players, they were. They, they, they had a lot more of a of a backstory. They were a lot more rounded individuals, and um, and I think that I think that's possibly a good thing to learn from. And I, and I think that the male football is getting like that now. If you talk to, you know, say Mason Mount or or, or Harry Winks or people we we talk to with England, they're, they're good guys. You know, they're all right. They've been media trained within an inch of their lives, but they are pleasant individuals. And they possibly have a bit more in their life than maybe footballers 30 years ago. And I, and I think, you know... Even, even 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you know, you look back to me, and I'm sure to you, things like the 2006 World Cup, 
Baden-Baden, when you really had that kind of footballers at that time had a pretty bad image. They were very much in the tabloids, in the front pages. And it was all the criticism, rightly or wrongly, aimed at those lads were, you know, the golden generation stuff was, it was all about them having too much money. They were too pampered. They were entitled. They were out of control. Now, that, and that seems, I mean, 2006 is quite a long time ago, but I always think of that being an era the noughties when footballers really felt like they, you know, it was like the last days of the Roman empire. Now, 2021, you look at that squad from the Euros. These are lads who, who are just, who are richer at an even younger age, even more famous because the coverage is inflated even more. And yet all of them seem really switched on feet on the ground, understanding pleasant blokes intelligent blokes a lot of them you know it's it's a, it's quite incredible isn't it the the change there's been amongst young young players it, it is and obviously we've got rashford who's, who's done what he's done and yeah. you know and, and and it is i think there is a there is a high level of of social conscience there now and maybe they're better advised um i mean going back to euro 96 i mean i was in my mid 20s you were probably your early 20s mm. yeah no, no footballer now is going to celebrate a goal by pretending to get absolutely twatted, are they? <laughs> by having lots of spirits poured into their necks. Dennis but that's an iconic Chair. image. No. I can't um, see Declan Rice and Man- Mason Mount doing a Dennis Chair. Declan Rice claimed that he'd never even had a pint of beer in his life. Yeah. So, so yeah, but that, that is the difference. But that was, but I think we all indulge that. You know, mm. I mean, it's, I've often wandered idly. I mean, I met Paul Gascoigne a few years ago. He was in the tunnel after an England game, played at Leicester. And, you know, what, what, what a legend. I grew up watching him when, when yeah. he, you know, we were of a, a similar age. And you look at him talking to the players, and all the players like Harry Kane had an immense respect for him, couldn't wait to queue up and talk to him because he was a great player. But he never fulfilled his potential, and he didn't fulfill his potential because he was on the source all the time, and it was encouraged, you know, he was indulged to be this sort of larger-than-life character. And you just wonder now, what sort of footballer would he be? Maybe he wouldn't be as, as extravagant a footballer, but maybe he would have won 10 Premier League titles playing for somebody who would have got hold of him and got the best out of him. And and I think that, I think it's good that we've moved on. People might say footballers... Are a, are a lot more dull now, are a lot more packaged and media trained, but but they're probably getting more out of their lives. And yeah. Paul Gascoigne lived the life. There's, there's no doubt about that. You know, Jimmy Greaves li- lived the life. And But did they actually get to where they wanted to be? And, and did we not give them the opportunity the way that we were at the time? You look at the, the way that Fleet Street was in the, the, the late 80s and early 90s. You look at the way that, you know, there were lads mags probably looking to, to, to get mm. pictures of Paul Gascoigne down in 10 points. Or, or yeah, it was celebrated. The problem was, yeah. I don't think that, that we should necessarily condemn, but it, it was the, the the two extremes of media coverage of that kind of life was, um, you, it was either celebrated like, wow, look at what a great time he's having. He's living it up. Or it was condemned like, what a mess. This is disgusting. Um, you know, he, he is, he's worthy of contempt. And in fact, what it should be is kind of concern Yes, a bit exactly. of sympathy, you, you know, and, and, you know, but if you're, if you are living in a culture that constantly celebrates you for basically being a bit out of control, then you're, you don't really have many warning signs that you should stop. You have the opposite. You have, well, it looks like I'm doing the right thing here because the more I do it, everyone, the more everyone seems to love me and find me hilarious, you know? Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, probably a, a whole other podcast that and examination. Sorry, I've gone of off it. topic. Sorry. No, no, it's it's, it's, it's me. I am too because it's fascinating to me. But listen, Nigel, I'm really appreciative of your time and for you being so open about such uh, personal um, experiences. I think it would be a, a, a huge amount of help to people listening. I hope so. It certainly is to me. And just meeting someone else who's had a similar experience with epilepsy and. Um, is is amazing actually because I always thought that I was an exception to the rule in that I thought there's medical epileptics who've had to live with this and be on medication their whole life and then there's me who has never been prescribed medication but has had several seizures and no test has ever really established why you know um, 
and uh, you know it is a traumatic experience and it's something that anyone who's been through needs to sort of examine certainly a bit more than I've ever done so I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it because I've sort of reflected a bit on it more um, I'm glad things are better for you now glad that you're learning to say no a bit more and um, thanks ever so much for your time Cheers Sam it's always helpful to talk about something like this and, and today's been a great help Fantastic Cheers Nigel well, that was Nigel Adderley, a very fine broadcaster and a very fine man. I really appreciated him opening up about subjects so personal. I hope it helped him to share all of that. Certainly was a privilege for me. Obviously, Nigel's been through a very specific and extreme trauma in losing his son. But I think the takeout for all of us, no matter what our own lives are like, is that you need to honour and process the big stuff that happens in your life. That means sometimes being brave enough to take time out, look after yourself, say no to stuff and try to come to terms with what you've been through. Just trying to keep on going and distract yourself with work and never-ending chaos of life is a short-term solution. Sooner or later, your feelings will catch up with you. If you want to read more about my own experiences of epilepsy, then go to samdelaney.substack.com where you can subscribe for free to The Reset, access all of my weekly articles on mental health and get this podcast sent to your inbox once a week too. Until next time, thanks for listening, gang. Be lucky. And don't let the dickheads get you down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.